This podcast is brought to you by the Catholic Parliamentary Liaison Office with sponsorship from the Hans Seidel Foundation. In it, the Executive Director of Corruption Watch, Mr. Karam Singh, speaks about the role played by the private sector in state capture and how it can be made more accountable. Thank you. Thanks so much again. Thanks to the Catholic Parliamentary Liaison Office and the Hans Seidel Foundation for creating this opportunity. It's a great pleasure for me to be here and to make this presentation. Uh, my name is Karam Singh. I'm the Executive Director at Corruption Watch. I took up this role from the beginning of this year. This is a 10th year anniversary of Corruption Watch, and it was previously led by Mr. David Lewis, who's retired. I joined Corruption Watch at the end of 2019 as head of legal and investigations. And it's fair to say with everything that's been happening in the country, uh, with the proceedings of the Zondo Commission uh, and the release of the various reports, that has been an extremely busy time for us. Um, increasingly, we're being asked to comment on the Zondo report, and every opportunity gives us a new chance to kind of look at the report through different lenses. So it's a great uh, opportunity uh, and it's a great privilege for me to be here. I'd also like to acknowledge my uh, uh, co-panelist, uh, Prof. Gumedi. It's a great pleasure to uh, and honor to be on the platform with him. So in terms of my presentation, I, I'm not sure that I'm going to effectively get to the why question. Uh, a lot of my presentation is about politics and about structural issues and um, I think some of the issues of the ethic and ethical and moral dilemmas are implicit in some of the comments, but hopefully as the discussion unfolds, these, will, the, the, these uh, issues will emerge. Um, it's worth me just giving uh, um, some background on who Corruption Watch is. As I mentioned, it's been 10 years of Corruption Watch. We're a civil society organization um, that's committed to the fight against corruption. Uh, we use a variety of different tools in our approach from research to uh, advocacy to engaging in policy discussions, strategic litigation, uh, public mobilization campaigns, um, mass communications and public education, select investigations, multi-stakeholder partnerships and international networks. We're funded largely through philanthropy and it's important to note that we are the uh, South African chapter of Transparency International. We've been involved with the work of the Zondo Commission from, the, from inception. We made submissions to the Commission and we had a colleague who I see is online uh, in this meeting who attended the Commission every single day for over three years and, and wrote um, daily dispatches from the Commission that were circulated in our networks. And uh, that work we're hoping to put together into a book on the Zondo Commission. Um, so uh, that's, that's been an incredible contribution that was from my colleague Valencia Tabane. Um, on the Commission, you know, there were a lot of assumptions um, made in the, in the advert uh, for this session that, um, you know, that the Zondo Commission merely confirmed what we already knew. And I think it's important to challenge that, that assumption, because if it wasn't for the Gupta leaks, 
If it wasn't for three years plus of testimony, there's a lot that we wouldn't have known. Um, you know, if you think about the state of capture report from Tuli Madansela, it was focused very much on this relationship uh, between the Guptas and President Zuma and, and other key political leaders. Um, but so much more came out in the commission uh, about the state capture project. The, 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 the commission even delved into areas um, that weren't in the initial thinking of the former public protector. I'm thinking particularly about the interrogation of the whole Basasa issue, which obviously predates the administration of Jacob Zuma. Um, the report to me and, and the, the process of the commission has been a great victory in the anti-corruption struggle for issues around transparency. So if it wasn't for the commission, we wouldn't have this incredible record of what happened. Um, the commission also through its findings and recommendations begins to give us a bit of a roadmap of some of the changes that are required to ensure that the state isn't captured again. But obviously there's a lot of criticism now that comes the way of the commission. Criticism about the amount of money that was spent to do it and what are the ultimate um, consequences that flow from the commission by way of accountability. And I think those criticisms are fair, but it's, it's unfair to lay those criticisms on the door of the commission because effectively the, the terms of reference and the very concept of the commission of inquiry, as we saw previously with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, is that it wasn't a vehicle through which justice was going to be realized. There's a handoff that happens at the end of the commission, a handoff to the police, a handoff to the prosecution authorities, a handoff to the presidency, to various different mandate holders across the public sector to now do something with these findings and recommendations. That wasn't the remit of this commission. And, and I think some of the frust frustration that we have is how do we uncover what happened uh, and still uh, um, push for accountability? And I think a judicial commission of inquiry as it currently functions doesn't provide that to us. And I think this is something that we need to consider going forward in terms of how do we build a, a, a consequence management, accountability and justice into our commissions of inquiry. And, and this critique that I'm putting out could, could easily be applied to the Maricana Commission as well and other commissions of inquiry that we've seen in the, in the democratic era. So let's take a step back and talk about what we mean by state capture. Uh, um, and first we need to talk about what we mean by corruption because both the concept of corruption and the concept of state capture, if, if we don't interrogate their meanings, can be a little bit blunt. Um, and the Transparency International definition of corruption is the abuse of a tr entrusted power for private gain. And this could be uh, in relationship to various activities like bribery, fraud, nepotism. Um, in some ways, this definition focuses on, it, on individuals. It speaks less about um, the kind of systemic implications of corruption, um, but that we can also understand that corruption is a systemic issue rooted in, uh, root, rooted in, in, in political culture, in history, and in social norms. So, 
Can we distinguish the concept of corruption a bit further? I'll just ask everybody online to mute again, thank you. There's this notion around political corruption. That's when political decision makers, those with power, who make the rules or use their power for private benefits. Uh, again, anybody online, please mute yourselves. Um, political corruption is very much a, a feature of state capture. Political corruption has also been linked to notions around grand corruption and kleptocracy. Then we, we talk about the notion of administrative corruption involving low or mid-level bureaucrats, um, distinct from political corruption because it could, could involve officials who are not necessarily um, political actors as such and also in, in, invokes this notion of petty corruption, which is multiple occurrences of small amounts, uh, um, such as the corruption that we've seen historically in, in things like social grant fraud and in driver, driver's license fraud. I previously spent some years working at the Special Investigating Unit and the SIU in the 90s, uh, in the early O's, uh, became a very effective organization when it came to dealing with petty corruption and administrative corruption. Within political corruption, we can make two further uh, distinctions, what we call extractive corruption, corruption that's involved in uh, seeking to gain wealth and status, embezzlement, economic crimes, procurement fraud, and then power-preserving corruption to consolidate political control. And again, we see both aspects of extractive corruption and political preserving corruption in, in our understanding of state capture. State capture comes into our discourse in the early 2000s, um, to and it, it was initially used to refer to the economic and political transitions that were taking place in Eastern Europe. It then finds expression for the first time in South Africa in that's quite frustrating, the online participants. I'm so sorry for it to everybody. Um, there's certain Zoom protocols that we need to honor in order to make these meetings effective. Um, in terms of the, the state, state capture then comes into uh, former public protector Madoncello's report in 2016. The Zondo Commission notably doesn't give us a clear definition of what state capture is. It's interesting because I was at a conference two weeks ago and I made the comment that uh, a state capture didn't start with the Guptas and Jacob Zuma and it didn't end with uh, a, a Jake, the, the administration of Jacob Zuma. And, um, and I used the example of Bosasa to talk about states, the features of state capture that we saw prior to the uh, Zuma administration. And Tuli Madansala was in the office, in the, in the office, and she said, um, but Bosasa wasn't about state capture. Bosasa wasn't state capture. So I found that to be an interesting comment because that certainly wasn't the view of the, uh, the state capture commission when they spent so much time and resources interrogating the Bosasa issue. There's been some recent academic studies on state capture and it talks about three stages in state capture. The, the, the attempt to capture laws and policies, the control of the implementers, and then the disabling of accountability institutions. And we see aspects, uh, these different aspects in the state capture project in South Africa in different ways. So um, 
there has been some convergence on the meaning of state capture through uh, academic, academic engagement with the topic. State capture occurs when politicians and private actors collude to seize control of key state institutions to serve their own ends. It entails a mix of acts designed to extract wealth and entrench power. The mechanisms of state capture that we saw in South Africa involved controlling of strategic economic assets through control of state-owned enterprises, control of state institutions uh, um, of control, the police, military, the intelligence, control of lawmaking bodies, parliament, and then uh, um, the weakening of oversight institutions, notably the NPA, the SARS, and National Treasury. And I think, again, the NPA becomes quite a critical example in this because we see state capture or attempts to kind of uh, um, impede on the independence of the MPA long before 2009. Uh, uh, and, and, and I think the rebuilding of the MPA is now critical to, to how we think about how accountability functions uh, post so-called state capture. So, I mean, it is a concept. Um, it's not clear to me that state capture is ever complete, particularly in a democratic context. We could think about how it would function in a more authoritarian or in a context that wasn't guided by a constitution. But it's clear that the state capture project was incomplete in South Africa, that despite challenges we have within the judiciary, that the judiciary was not captured. Uh, the Zondo Commission dedicates an entire chapter to the attempted capture of national treasury, uh, but treasury wasn't captured as far as we, as far as the Zondo Commission is concerned. And key institutions like the SIU were not captured. Um, the media and the SABC is an interesting case study. Bosasa, again, we've noted is a key, key case study. But I think the, the, the challenge that we sit with now are what are the remnants of state capture that still characterize our body politic? Do we understand the PPE corruption that happened in 2020 as a kind of a, a form of state capture or a form of kleptocracy? How do we understand how the Hauteng Department of Health functions as an entity that's been under investigation for uh, extreme uh, uh, cases of, uh, of corruption going back almost two decades? And, and I'll leave that as an open question. Corruption, so now moving to the, the core of my presentation, what Mike asked me to speak about is this relationship between the public sector and the private sector. And I refer to this as a symbiotic relationship. So for me, um, you know, sometimes corruption watch gets criticized to say you focus too much on public sector corruption. And for me, you know, the majority of corruption issues that we're dealing with involve both public sector actors and private sector actors. So we can imagine that there is a, a form of corruption which exists in the, in the public sector, which doesn't involve private interests. And we understand things like Steinhoff and others where there's extreme fraud that exists in the private sector. But, but generally, and certainly through state capture, we saw that there was this relationship between public sector and private sector actors. So the Guptas, Jacob Zuma, uh, political appointees to key institutions, leaders at SOEs, management consultants, financial institutions presided over that era of state capture that was the subject of the Judicial Commission of Inquiry. Um, this influenced both local and provincial politics, it influenced national issues, and it had international exposure through the role of transnational companies and international money laundering. Uh, 
some of the key intermediaries, enablers, and transnational entities that were noted in the report include McKinsey, uh, McKinsey's work at Transnet, McKinsey's work at ESCOM, and then the linkages between McKinsey, Regiment, and Trillion. Uh, and this has been widely reported. Um, and, you know, it was one of the more curious aspects of the commission was the uh, settlement agreement that the commission negotiated with McKinsey to pay back the money. And it's not clear to me um, sort of how that happened, you know, and whether that was directly within the remit of the commission. It's something that was, was somewhat surprising, and it's not completely clear to me what McKinsey uh, admitted to in the context of paying back money. Um, which then takes us to Bain, and Bain has very much been in, in the spotlight. We know about the work of Lord Peter Hayne at the House of Lords uh, and at the UK Parliamentary Office to effectively now ban Bain in the UK as a result of their activities in South Africa. Uh, um, and uh, you can find Athel Williams' book at Exclusive Books, and you can read, read the newspaper uh, every day about sort of new developments on the Bain story. But effectively, Bain, you know, Bain didn't cooperate. Uh, they were accused of, of perjury in front of the Nugent Commission. They didn't cooperate fully with the Zondo Commission. And there's lots of unanswered questions as a result of Bain around existing contracts that Bain are still, uh, still may have with government. And then the recent story that came out was uh, comments by the acting director general at National Treasury around looking, looking to the possibility of whether Bain could be banned in South Africa. And I, I have written to Lord uh, Peter Hayne to understand exactly on what legal basis did the Cabinet Office make that decision in the UK? And does, from his understanding, um, is that something that the South African Cabinet could still do? Um, you know, we know that the Presidency has held back on responding directly to the Zondo Commission's findings and recommendations. That's still forthcoming. So I think Bain, Bain is a really interesting case study. Um, I'm not going to go into detail around all of these issues because my, my time is running against me, but these are issues which now come up in the Zondo Commission report, the role of PricewaterhouseCoopers at uh, SAA. Um, we know about the role of Bell Pottinger in terms of uh, sort of the, the, some of the messaging and the kind of uh, creation of uh, the white monopoly capital label. And then the role of Nedbank uh, in these various interest swaps that they were involved in at AXA. Um, the Zondo report says that Nedbank and associated people should be investigated further for their role in these contracts. I, I'm always interested by the language in the report that talks about further investigations. My sense is that we're not talking necessarily about investigations that would start from inception, but investigations that would then build upon the findings that have already coming out of the commission. Of course, if you're going to prosecute somebody criminally, you can't rely on the Zondo Commission testimony alone. You'd have to, you'd have to uh, find other kind of corroboration and evidence to pursue uh, uh, charges criminally. Uh, um, uh, if you were to, if, if those investigations were to, were to take forward, but we're not seeing, we're not getting any any real indication from the NASA National Prosecuting Authority that they're interested in pursuing these cases against. Uh, uh, transnationals uh, uh, and banks. You know, the, one of the biggest critiques of the Zonda Commission relates to the role of the banking sector uh, and a view that the, there was a wide berth that was given and that there weren't dedicated hearings 
relating to issues around money laundering and around the ways in which banks facilitated particularly the activities of the Guptas. Uh, globally, we see from, from the UN studies that 2 to 5% of the global GDP is laundered annually. And that, that's laundered through, the, through, through um, internationally recognized financial institutions. So HSBC, Standard Bank, Bank of Baroda, all have a history of having banked the Guptas. Um, where is the accountability going to flow for those activities? Um, lack of financial transparency facilitates uh, um, money laundering. And we've seen that through various exposés in the Panama Papers and from the FEN-C files. Um, banks are meant to report suspicious transactions to the Financial Intelligence Center, um, but it's not clear how that operates and it's not clear what the Financial Intelligence Center does when it receives this information from banks because we haven't seen any prosecution of banks uh, um, for their role in facilitating money laundering as a result of corruption. Where banks appeared before the commission, they often presented themselves as victims, as being at the wrong place at the wrong time, and not as enablers. But there's overwhelming evidence which points otherwise. But the commission failed to fully interrogate the role of banking officials uh, and did not um, recommend um, accountability for officials within that system. While the report does have some discussions in part six around structural failures of the financial system, and of the HSBC's role in laundering funds from Transnet through Dubai and Hong Kong, the individuals that are associated with those uh, activities um, have not been fingered or held responsible. Uh, the Zondo notes that the FIC should investigate, but no recommendations for uh, a bank, man bank management to be investigated or prosecuted. And this is a problem. Uh, it's a problem around the lack of individual accountability and that enablers are able to absorb fines as a cost of business because virtually all major financial institutions are complicit in money laundering. So we have seen banks uh, internationally pay huge fines as a result of corruption scandals. We've seen this in Malaysia with the Ambank scandal. We saw it in Holland with the ABN Ambro scandal. Um, but it's unclear how these types of fines are viewed uh, in the sector and whether they're not just seen as a cost of doing business. So there, there's a critique emerging that we've got a, a major problem around the internal culture within financial institutions. Broadly, in terms of private sector culpability and state capture, if you go into the area of criminal law, criminal law talks about uh, perpetrators, it talks about accessories, and it talks about uh, conspirators. Um, when does an enabler become a perpetrator? Um, what's the legal and moral responsibility upon banks to do more than they've been doing up to this point? Um, how do we pierce the corporate veil to begin to look at individual accountability of the leadership of these institutions? And at the moment, the system doesn't accommodate that, and perhaps that begins to answer some of the questions around why it's so easy for this kind of complicity to take place. Um, these are the, my last set of slides, and it, it basically talks about what are the existing tools that we have available to us to push for accountability. So everybody talks about orange overalls and prosecutions. That remains the, the sole discretion of the National Prosecuting Authority. 
internationally, we don't have an international anti-corruption court. We have an international criminal court, but we don't see people being brought to the international criminal court uh, per se on corruption charges. So let's focus on in terms of what we have domestically. We have prosecutions. There's a possibility for asset recovery. The SIU now has a special tribunal. We have the asset forfeiture unit within the MPA. We know from the SIU's work on PPE corruption that asset recovery is incredibly challenging because of the way money laundering functions. So um, there's a regular procurement, uh, money gets paid to a service provider, seven figures, eight figures, it goes into one bank account, and then it's immediately dissipated into a number of bank accounts. Some of that money goes overseas and is washed, becomes very difficult to recover. What I'm increasingly learning about money laundering is that you don't need to take money off seas necessarily to launder it. So there are all sorts of other schemes that, um, that um, corrupt actors engage in that allows them to launder money domestically, including paying for properties with cash, um, fictitious litigation, um, and, and, and other types of schemes. There is this notion of blacklisting, as we saw with Bain in the UK. We have a database of restricted suppliers. We also have a register of tender defaulters. You won't be surprised to, to note that these databases are not, are not uh, littered with lots of listings. This is underutilized currently in our current system. Um, could we see blacklisting as a result of executive action, similar to what the UK Parliamentary Office did? Question mark. You know, from the comments coming out of National Treasury, this is, seems to be something which is being considered. And then there could be sanctions from other types of professional bodies. Um, and, you know, there was a bit of a brouhaha about uh, uh, BLSA and, and Bain previously. And, you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, promoting voluntary and proactive disclosures. There's this notion called deferred prosecution agreements, which does find recognition in the Zondo report as something which is recommended. It is something which is, um, it's a tool which many law enforcement agencies around the world have, but it's not, it doesn't currently exist in South African law as a tool that the MPA could use. It's a form of plea bargaining, but it would be a way in which you would regularize the process of paying back the money. So McKinsey, so the, in, in theory, an entity like McKinsey would enter into a deferred prosecution agreement with the MPA where they make very specific disclosures about what they did. They, they, they agree that they won't engage in this type of conduct again. And the prosecution authority says, we will monitor you. And if you, if you don't abide by the agreement, we retain our discretion to prosecute you in, in the future. And it, it creates a different type of discussion between um, uh, 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 perpetrators and, and enablers and law enforcement, and it's in the context of proactive disclosures. We've spoken a lot about um, the need for beneficial ownership transparency, and this is about, again, about piercing the corporate veil to understand who the real owners of companies are, because we know that a lot of money flows through fake companies. So um, uh, this is a big issue internationally, and it's a challenge, but it, it's something where at the moment we don't have beneficial ownership tra transparency. And integrity packs 
are basically agreements between private sector actors that they won't do the wrong thing. Um, and it's also an important, it, it is an important tool. Um, okay, I'm in my last couple of slides. Uh, ultimately, state capture can only be pre prevented with the corrupt cooperation of the private sector. So there has to be both political will and there has to be corporate will. So it's, it's not something that resides solely within the, the remit of, of government. Um, we need to uh, promote compliance with the rule of law and the notion of what it means to be a good corporate citizen. Banks can certainly be more transparent in the manner in which they collect and share information with authorities, and they can refuse to do business with suspicious parties. So if you look at sort of when was the gig really up for the Guptas, it was when the Bank of Baroda and others said they were going to stop banking them. So that's something that's within the power of banks, and it'd be very difficult for an implicated person to challenge that, because then they would need to disclose uh, why they're not implicated. Um, and then, you know, there clearly needs to be changes within the internal culture of financial institutions around a zero tolerance for uh, facilitating corruption, and we don't see that now. That's the end of my presentation. Um, I'd like to say that, you know, from Corruption Watch's standpoint, it's a very rich topic. You know, it's a rich topic from a research standpoint. It's a rich topic from an advocacy standpoint. It's a, these are important issues to understand how we can kind of uh, uh, shift the dial in terms of a comprehensive uh, response to ensuring that state capture doesn't happen again. So it's in process. Um, the answers aren't completely clear. There's lots of, of kernels in the Zondo Commission report that we can take forward. Um, but, you know, we, it, I think we, we can't claim any uh, easy victories that somehow we've turned the corner into a new dawn and that state capture is completely behind us because I don't think that that would fairly characterize our existing political, socio-cultural uh, dynamic in the country right now. Thank you. News of our events and our podcasts can be accessed via our website. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe at cplo.org.za.